Pepper. My name is uh, Francesco Caselli. I'm a professor of economics here at the LSE. And I'm also a member of the Center for Macroeconomics that co-sponsors this event, which is to celebrate uh, 25 years of the LSE Summer School, um, and, uh, which is a great achievement of which we are very proud, and some of the people who have uh, founded and built the school are present in the room, and uh, we are all very grateful for their efforts. Um, the topic of uh, tonight's lecture is um, the great stagnation, uh, what can policymakers do? Uh, good question. Um, my answer is I don't know, but uh, we have two speakers here who are uh, uh, exceptionally well placed to uh, address it. Um, the first speaker would be uh, Professor David Webb, uh, also from the LSE. Uh, David uh, is the head of the finance department uh, here at LSE and in many ways the creator of the finance department here at LSE. Uh, before that, he's been uh, for many years in the economics department. Um, he will probably not like that, but I like to think of him as a bit of an LSE institution uh, for uh, uh, all he's done uh, for the LSE and for his continued contribution to the LSE. He has published uh, very extensively in a variety of topics in finance, uh, banking, uh, contract theory, uh, and monetary economics. And um, his PhD is from LSE. Uh, the second speaker is uh, Sushil Vadvani, uh, who is currently the CEO of uh, Vadvani Asset Management, uh, to which he uh, has uh, arrived after a long and distinguished career, both in the academia and the uh, uh, private sector and in the public sector. He's been on the MPC, um, he's been at Goldman, he's been at the Quantitative Systems Group, he's been at Tudor Property Trading, and last but not least, uh, he has been for several years an academic here at the LSE, uh, where he has also built a distinguished uh, publishing uh, record, and like David, is also a, a LSE PhD. So we have two uh, uh, homegrown boys uh, discussing uh, 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 policy in the nation. Okay, so with that uh, introduction, uh, I will ask David to uh, get started with some remarks. First of all, I should thank uh, Francesco for uh, that nice introduction and Richard Jackman for inviting me to be here today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with my uh, old friend and colleague Sushil. Uh, I'm older than Sushil, uh, but we taught the uh, summer school course when it first started, which I guess if it was 25 years ago, it must have been 1988. And uh, those were the good old days where you didn't need to prepare very much. There certainly wasn't anything like this. These, PowerPoint thing, so it was a matter of showing up and pretending that you'd uh, sorted out your uh, notes and thoughts beforehand, picking up a piece of chalk and doing the best you could. And uh, anyway, the summer school prospered even after we started it off, which is <laughs> kind of remarkable, but it was a lot of fun. And uh, I stayed at the LSE for the, remain for the last 25 years. Social uh, sadly left and went into the real world. I should say, when we were colleagues together, uh, we used to argue quite a lot because I believe financial markets work really rather well and Sushil was very suspicious of that. He was convinced that uh, invariably things would go wrong. There'd be periods of uh, 
of crisis. There'd be um, a lot of uh, what these days apparently you can call dysfunctionality and so on, and, and market inefficiencies uh, would, would certainly arise and so on. Well, um, as if you look at our bank, bank, bank uh, balances today and our respective net worths, you'll realise uh, who understood most about how the world works. Anyway, I'm still here, struggling away. So what I'm going to talk to, I'm going to, talk to you uh, about today is liquidity. Um, have we got that thing? That, uh, yes. Right, it's on a lead. So um, it's a little bit to do with something to do with the financial crisis. So I gave Richard this title because it's very general. I didn't think it committed me too much to doing anything in particular. But I decided that uh, I'd try to make it reasonably specific, slightly anticipating without seeing uh, Sussel's talk. So let me just say some things about uh, liquidity and then we'll take it from there. Hopefully some issues of interest will arise. So a market said to be liquid if it can absorb a lot of liquidity trades. That sale of securities by investors to meet sudden needs for cash without large change in price. Now I'm not going to talk about the microstructure of markets today, which is a very big topic in finance. So we're not going to be talking about bid-ask spreads, order flow and so on, what market makers may do. Um, I'm going to talk more about macroeconomic liquidity and banking. And obviously I'm going to talk a little bit about things to do with the financial crisis. Uh, but I'm not going to talk much about regulatory um, reforms and debates, because I know Sussel uh, certainly likes talking about that. Um, there's some very nice notes on it, but I'm not going to use them. Um, let me just say, though, that uh, if you look back to 1929, at the, uh, the, 19, uh, the, the crash and its aftermath, and liquidity certainly played a role in that. There's much discussion of you know, buying stock on margin, and then uh, once markets start to decline, uh, the unwinding of uh, leveraged positions leading to multiplied uh, decreases, in fact, essentially correlated sales of assets across the market, dramatic price changes. And that's something that you know been well studied in economics. More recent times, um, uh, look at 1987 crash. <laughs> that was the, the 1987 crash coincided with the foundation of the financial markets group. This will may not remember that, but uh, there were three events occurred at the same time. The Great Hurricane, the stock market crash, and the uh, opening event of the financial markets group with Mervyn King and so on. And, uh, it was kind of an interesting time. If you look at the Russia LTCM uh, crisis in 1998, uh, then we uh, see uh, again... Um, the effects of unwinding leveraged positions, flight to safety and so on, a need for investors to get into liquid assets, and this leads to quite dramatic price changes and so on, a lot of volatility. Um, so, for example, during the Russian crisis, you saw you know, a big increase in demand for treasury bonds, which rose in price relative to um, uh, you know, uh, less liquid debt instruments, and um, this, the uh, simultaneous effect on credit spreads and so on, um, ultimately destroyed the uh, LTCM hedge fund and, and many others. LTCM, for what it's worth, wasn't invested heavily in Russian-related uh, instruments. It was related in other instruments, but they, were, they, had, they fell in price or spread widened at the same time that uh, the Russian um, default occurred. Um, Okay, uh, market liquidity then, it, it, we're talking here about uh, the ease with which an asset can be converted into a liquid medium, and typically we mean cash, although other things might, might uh, count. 
another term that's of interest is funding liquidity, which, which refers to the ease with which borrowers can obtain external funding. Now, market liquidity and funding liquidity are not unrelated, and they're certainly worth thinking about uh, when you think about crisis-type situations. Um, just as a, a simple point, in, in illiquid markets, borrowers typically face higher loan costs and collateral requirements com compared to periods when there's a lot of liquidity, and also unsecured loans in particular are hard to get. So it's very, collateral's um, not worth as much, harder to borrow uh, on a collateralised, secured basis, and it's certainly harder to do unsecured loans. Um, in, an, in a liquidity crisis, market liquidity and funding liquidity can amplify the effects of small negative shocks to the economy, and um, uh, the resulting lack of liquidity uh, can lead to a full-blown financial crisis. And that's something that happened between 2007 and 2009. I'm going to talk actually more today about 2007, um, effectively the, uh, the run on the shadow banking system than I am about uh, Lehman's and post-Lehman's and so on. Uh, Lehman. Uh, but here's an interesting graph. Right? Now, don't ask me how this index is composed because it's a bit of a mystery. I do know, but it takes a lot of uh, explanation. Right? Always be suspicious about how indexes are composed, right? Otherwise, you might think the, the graph can be misleading. And magicians like me can perform the Svengali effect, but ultimately it might only be an illusion. Anyway, this graph's the graph of uh, liquidity in the market. You go, it's going from 1992 up to uh, just after the crisis. Now, as you can see, around about the time of the Russian default and the LTCM debacle, there was a massive collapse in liquidity in the markets. Now, if you go to um, uh, this, uh, the period from two uh, late, uh, this graph's running up between uh, the hedge fund crisis of uh, the late summer of 2007 up to Bear Stearns, thereabouts. It's actually not really following through much up to Lehman's. Uh, Lehman's, recall, I think it was September uh, 2008. But you can see there's just a catastrophic drop in liquidity. What's noticeable, by the way, is that, that before the crisis of 2008, the market thought there was a lot of liquidity. Yeah? And um, kind of interesting. If you look at this graph, there's many graphs you can look at to look at risk in the markets. This one is just one. You can look at credit default swap spreads and so on. Uh, this is the TED spread, the difference between the US Treasury and the Euro dollar. So it's a difference between a government rate and a high quality corporate bonding bond rate. Quite interesting, if you look at the uh, period of the uh, earlier part of uh, the last decade, um, from 2002, which I guess is uh, just after the uh, sort of Iraq war somewhere in here, isn't it? Um, Afghanistan, Iraq war. But, but look at the risk. I mean, the market basically thinks there isn't any. Yeah? It's a period where just a remarkable um, um, sanguine attitude in the markets about risk. So, so, so uh, risk premia are effectively very low. And then, of course, you get to the financial crisis and all hell breaks loose. Uh, you can see that this period here, a tremendous um, uh, increase in risk premia uh, uh, in the spread uh, through the, uh, the default risk, if you like, uh, in the bond market, uh, is jumping dramatically. And it's more or less at the same time as you can see that uh, a big fall in liquidity. So there's a flight to quality, if you like, probably taking place 
in there. Now, you know, banks are kind of important in the financial crisis. So this is a test for Sussel. This is the bank's balance sheet. Uh, banks lend a lot of money out in different kinds of ways. There's tons of ways they can lend money. Uh, they've got um, some debt-like uh, liabilities. Um, and here you have uh, deposits and, and bonds and so on. And then you've got the equity. This is actually book equity on a balance sheet just to make sure it balances. Yeah, that's what accountants do. Yeah. Now, um, this, um, there's a few things about banks. Well, the banks with Sussel and our lads looked like this. Yeah. In fact, I thought a bank was like this until all of a sudden I found out in the middle of the financial crisis. I was slightly out of date. Right? Uh, so banks you know, take deposits from households and then they basically lend them out to people in the form of mortgages and other types of loans. So that's a, simple, uh, a very simple kind of bank. Right? That's the kind of bank that uh, Northern Rock was supposed to be. And I think the FSA and the Bank of England actually thought it was. Now, uh, of course, banks, uh, in reality, it turned out to be much more complicated. The world had become a world in which banks were uh, what are called originate and distribute banks. So, you know, you're getting lots of money into the banks in various complicated ways, um, uh, possibly uh, taking them off. Uh, the, 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 there's an intermediation sector, uh, ultimately, between the households and, uh, and uh, effectively, the banks. You see, what this is a story of is fairly long uh, mortgage uh, chains. I mean, a slightly better picture might be, so we've got banks over here, then we've got insurance companies, pension funds, and, and uh, money market mutual funds over here, and then in the middle, there are various kinds of securities firms, securitized investment vehicles, perhaps not quite as distant from banks, things like conduits and so on, but also in here you've got investment banks and so on that can actually be taking... Uh, securitized loans off the balance sheets of uh, firms, of, of, of banks, and then uh, uh, fu uh, funding uh, the purchase of these uh, uh, assets, if you like, uh, by borrowing short term uh, from uh, money market mutual funds, insurance companies and so on, that uh, are uh, effectively uh, taking asset back to commercial paper. A short-term loan, if you like, a, it's a collateralized loan uh, to, uh, to help fund that. So it's, again, it's got short-term funding of longer-term investments, but it's done through intermediation in the capital markets, and there's more at play there than the traditional bank and households. Uh, there are traditional banks and, um, let's say, money market mutual funds, the example I've got here, uh, include insurance companies and so on. So quite, and this involves quite complicated intermediation chains. So let's, um, this originate and distribute a banking model that that picture was supposed to, to illustrate had become important during the financial crisis. And um, here's a marvellous quote. This, this is a, a great quote. It said, there's growing recognition that the dispersion of credit risk by banks to a broader and more diverse group of investors through that uh, type of mechanism that we've got rather than warehousing such risks, keeping them on the balance sheet, if you like, uh, has helped the uh, banking and uh, overall si financial system uh, be more resilient. The improved resili this improved resili resilience may be seen in fewer bank failures and more consistent credit, credit provision. Consequently, the commercial banks may be less vulnerable today to credit or economic shocks. That's 2006. 
from the IMF. Yeah? Right? So you see why that graph was so flat. Yeah? The banks thought it should be flat. The regulators thought it was flat. They'd actually assumed that the distribution of uh, these uh, risks into the capital market through securitization had actually uh, dispersed the risk so effectively uh, that the system was effectively holding uh, AAA or certainly high-grade <laughs> securities all over the place and there was very little to worry about. So if you looked at one of the banks in the financial system and realized it had very little equity uh, on its balance sheet, that was okay because there was not that much risk uh, out there. 2008 Financial Stability Report. Markets are struggling to establish prices that can clear a legacy of financial assets created during... Uh, this, is, this is just immediately after the Bear Stearns uh, collapse. Uh, Bear Stearns uh, had a big funding problem and was taken over by J.P. Morgan in, early, in the spring of 2008. So markets are struggling to establish prices that can clear legacy financial assets created during the credit market boom. Liquidity has fallen sharply in a number of markets at least until very recently, leveraged loan markets have been effectively closed. Many credit markets are dislocated. Um, so there's some reasons for that, which are kind of hinted upon in that statement there. Uh, but quite clearly, liquidity had dried up, and it was recognised that credit quality had deteriorated dramatically, and there was a lot to be worried about. Hence, that graph that we were looking at earlier uh, jumped dramatically around that time. Now, this is just a kind of quick summary of what we've just seen there, is that you've got a lot of leverage of financial in intermediation, larger balance sheets of intermediaries, uh, a lot of intertwining of intermediaries through the securitization exercises and so on. Uh, longer chains, maturity mismatch uh, is uh, out there to sustain the longer chains. The problem with that, though, is when things go wrong, you end up with deleveraging, shrinking balance sheets, unraveling of interbank lending, runs possibly retrenchment. It's all a bit worrying. So let me just say something about banking that we teach students. Now this is quite a long thing and I haven't got that much time, but just to prove that I can type. This is a statement about fragile banking. So we in economics had studied uh, frag fragility of this, uh, these maturity transforming banks, banks that effectively supply short-term li liquid deposits that pull together depositors that have probably got different consumption needs and simultaneously give them that smoothing, possibly better returns, but lower exposure to risk than they'd get if they invested in longer dated assets directly themselves. Uh, so these banks use these deposits to fund longer term investments. But as Diamond and Dibbig showed, that the banking equilibria are actually quite fragile. Uh, these uh, banking models can be subject to runs. They're a bit of a confidence trick. So these equilibria are held up by expectations. You've always got to be a bit concerned if something goes wrong and everybody believes the bank is weak, then the incentive of people that are thinking of keeping their money in the bank to take it out earlier can become quite serious. And if, if, you think, uh, if I think you're going to take our money out, possibly run the bank, I'll do the same, the bank can get into trouble. You might say immediately, well, that's something we can correct quite easily with deposit insurance, and certainly a lender of last resort to give us confidence that the bank actually will survive even if uh, there's some evidence that some weakness in the balance sheet. But fragile banking in the world is a bit more complicated than that, I'm afraid, as we found out during the crisis. Um, if you take this particular story here, a negative shock to asset prices 
uh, can affect the bank's capital, and that can worse weaken the bank's balance sheet. In order to maintain regulatory capital buffers and leverage ratios, the banks have to either raise capital or sell assets, precisely at a time when the prices have had a negative shock. So assuming that, uh, that the uh, asset prices depend uh, on the health of investors' balance sheets, prices will be further reduced, making matters worse for banks and so on. In other words, there's a series of feedback effects here. And uh, Brunner, Meyer and Pedersen, quite a nice paper in, uh, there's two actually, one in the Review of Financial Studies, another one in the Journal of Economic Perspectives, give a nice understanding of these loss spirals, which are due to uh, negative uh, price effects feeding off themselves through balance sheet adjustments needed to meet these requirements. Um, just at the same time that, that, uh, that this happens, uh, banks start to tighten up their lending requirements. They're going to be less uh, uh, generous in their lending. Margin requirements, if they're used, will get tighter and so on. And these effects all feel off, feed off each other. And one of the things that can happen, of course, is that you get general tightening, uh, increased haircuts and leveraged loans. So you get less lending taking place as banks expect more uh, collateral to uh, support any particular lending position. Um, now, here we're talking about what about banks if they're holding uh, ABS, asset-backed securities, like mortgage-backed securities. You might be aware that during the financial crisis, Lehman's uh, tanked in uh, 2008, and it felt a bit because it was holding an awful lot of mortgage-backed securities, the price of which had dropped. At which point, somebody rather cruelly said, Lehman's had the problem that <coughs> like Northern Rock, that was a, a mortgage bank trying to be an investment bank, Lehman's was an investment bank trying to be a mortgage bank, a building society, if you like. But, um, so this is a statement about how sensitivity to, uh, of banks holding large asset pools, just as a price impact effect that we're talking there, can actually cause uh, effectively um, the need to rebalance the bank towards more liquid, better quality assets and so on. And that's, a, that's something that can be magnified in the market. So let me, um, I haven't got very much time. Um, that's the right one. Yeah. So let me uh, just quickly say a little bit about this. Um, the originate to distribute banking model, uh, this involves, um, it, one feature of it is distributing uh, asset-backed securities into the, uh, my God, asset-backed securities <laughs> into the capital market to be held by SIVs and so on, and to be financed by asset-backed commercial paper, repo financing. And these particular programs are extremely vulnerable to, um, uh, if a shadow bank funding itself using ABS as collateral, borrowing through an ACP, uh, an asset-backed commercial paper program, uh, finds that the, the value of its collateral uh, deteriorates, then it's going to have to cut back its borrowing. And in doing so, um, uh, in selling the collateral, it sells the collateral in depressed markets. Uninsured against this event, other bank borrowers are potentially affected, so the problem may have systemic consequences. Now, that's actually quite important from the economic point of view. Number one, it illustrates the possibility of what's called pecuniary externality. And the danger of this is that whilst it's a price effect in an incomplete market, a, a price effect alone can have the same effects of a technological externality, like pollution and so on. So it can actually have very serious and have multiplied effects on, uh, on the system. That's something that's been extremely nicely studied in a number of papers. I've mentioned them here. And um, at the same time, um, the, uh, 
you know, it's quite interesting to actually look just more locally at, at how the, why it was during the financial crisis we saw this um, uh, collapse in the early phase of the shadow banking system. Northern Rock uh, got into trouble because its, its, uh, its um, conduit, called uh, Granite, uh, was funding itself using asset-backed commercial paper in, in the, in the it's a repo financing model. And as uh, repo financing costs got greater, Northern Rock, along with you know, the hedge funds that uh, had problems at this time, couldn't refinance itself. And hence, along with other uh, organizations of a similar kind, uh, was subject to runs. This is sometimes called the run on the repo. That's what it's called in the United States. And it's this um, short-term funding model that relies very significantly on liquid markets for collateral. And if that gets into a, in a bad shape, then rolling over the short-term loans to fund the positions becomes extremely difficult. If then the negative price effects of selling pressure from firms like the hedge funds and Northern Rock become significant, then it can actually cause pollution of the market and makes that problem a rather general one. So that's something that really concerns us. And when Mervyn King said that was a moral hazard problem and there was no role for the central bank in sorting that mess out, he was wrong. This is a problem to do with liquidity in the markets. This mar these markets were short of liquidity. Yeah? And you must actually supply liquidity to the market or deal very specifically with the troubled institution. But what you certainly don't do is just leave it to the dogs because peculiar externalities are polluting. Yeah? Right? It's not that straightforward. Okay, I'm going to say one or two things. The interbank market, very interesting. The interbank market, very interesting market for liquidity amongst um, uh, banks. Uh, something worth studying, can't go into it now. Uh, this is where banks borrow short term overnight on a secured, non secured basis amongst each other. During the financial crisis, this performed reasonably well up to Northern Rock uh, and the hedge fund crisis. But interesting enough, we've studied this here at the LSE, these are my colleagues. Uh, we've seen that uh, using network analysis, that uh, liquidity of different banks during the finance, up to the financial crisis, was strategic complements. And then once things became problematic, uh, they became strategic substitutes, and then uh, there's a clear role then for the central bank to add confidence to the system. Uh, otherwise the system can, uh, well, it's, can't, it's effectively completely gridlock, which it did. Okay, here's some little points about the financial, this is a complete history of the financial crisis in four slides, this is, I haven't got time to do it, it's just about to tell me to stop. Right? Yeah. I'm only going to yeah. comment on the big bits. Northern Rock, I've told you about it. Um, the um, the, the, the run on the, on the shadow banks uh, was to do with liquidity in the, in the funding market of the banks. I've told you about it. The, um, uh, the problem with the shadow banking system was that the shadow banks didn't have direct access to central bank liquidity. They didn't have insurance and they didn't have direct access to central bank liquidity. There's nothing wrong with securitization through the capital market and so on providing the funding model is properly understood by all participants, particularly by the regulators, and that uh, it, when, it, when it needs it, it can get correctly funded. There are moral hazard issues, but quite frankly, sometimes uh, you, you, know, you can handle those with proper regulatory uh, requirements. Um, the, uh, so let me quit all of that, just to prove I've got some slides. What's that last one? Is that a title at the top? Let me just say a few things about this. I'm going to stop it. One minute. 30 seconds. 15. 15, okay. <laughs> financial crisis started off because of a lot of in, imbalances in, in, the, in the financial system. 
Social was not personally responsible for the, the financial crisis because it's a cute guy. But lots of people who were doing the kind of job that he was doing years ago, like running the, running the monetary system, well, particularly Alan Greenspan, right, were responsible for setting up a system where you got massive imbalances, loads of cheap credit. And we invented a lightly regulated financial system that made a right old mess of it, yeah? very highly leaving. Risks and liquidity, that's my two graphs, are endogenous and they're co-determined. You can see that in the graph. Yeah? There's something going on. We've done a lot of work to try and understand that. Pecuniary externality, technical thing, and amplification, me amplification mechanisms in leveraged interconnected environments are a major factor in explaining the size of the crisis. Financial complexity, blah, blah, blah. There are lots of things about this. This is the Titanic, which Andre Schleifer likes to talk about. And this is the famous Queen statement, right? So when we talk about the financial crisis, the Queen comes along and said, okay, you guys lots of, he meant him. You guys are very smart, right? right? What are you doing telling us all about the financial crisis? Right? Um, why didn't you see it? Why didn't you warn us about it? And so on. Well, uh, that's kind of interesting. However, whatever you think of that, there certainly is a need, we even socialize agree on this, for better macro and micro prudential regulation. But liquidity is very important in just understanding what's going on in the markets where you know, banks uh, you know, perform a crucial intermediation function between ultimate savers and ultimate uh, investors. Uh, but it's certainly something that won't always work perfectly because there will be these things. Yeah? Okay. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. You've always been a very hard act to follow. I, when I first uh, got an academic job at the LSE, my office was right next to David. And you had all these happy students coming out of his office. It's bullshit. Um, but, but anyway. Uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, that's, that's a very ambiguous statement. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want that to be misunderstood. Uh, uh, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, as, as David said, uh, we both taught this course 25 years ago, uh, and I'm grateful to Richard Jackman for inviting me. Um, now, David spoke uh, at length about what the central banks got wrong uh, during the crisis, uh, ahead of the crisis, uh, and, and what they should uh, be doing now in terms of regulation. Uh, he correctly focused on liquidity and regulation. Uh, I'm going to spend much more time uh, talking about the macro. Um, now, uh, essentially, uh, as a lot of you will know, uh, the UK is in this incredibly depressing situation where several years after the crisis, uh, this recovery has been surprisingly anemic. Um, so if you compare, uh, if you look at, the, at this left-hand side picture, the extraordinary thing is that this recovery has been rather weaker 
than the one even uh, than the ones in the 20s and the 30s. So we went back to uh, the level of output uh, that, that we'd fallen from uh, in the 20s and 30s much more quickly than we've done this time. And that's also true of all post-war, post-World War II recoveries. So, so, so this has been quite an unusual recovery or non-recovery, uh, if you prefer that term. Now, there are two ways to look at this. There are those who think that policy could be more appropriate, and there are those who say there's not much that can be done. Um, now, in terms of those who say there's not much can be done, you've got the ex-governor of the BOJ, and indeed the ex-governor uh, of the Bank of England, uh, who was uh, our colleague. Um, so their argument tends to be that uh, the key thing about monetary easing is that it only has these very temporary effects. Uh, so Shirakawa-san argues that uh, all it does is it brings forward future demand uh, and you eventually run out of future demand to bring forward. Uh, and also any stimulus through the exchange rate uh, is, is a zero-sum game. Um, and, and Mervyn essentially agrees with that. Now, I would argue that both those propositions are rather controversial, uh, both in terms of theory and empirics, and, and let me come back to that. Both of them point to Japan uh, as, as the reason why we shouldn't be uh, more optimistic uh, about the recovery. And, you know, Japan's had its two lost decades, uh, and, they, and they argue that we're essentially condemned to repeat that experience. I think that's fundamentally wrong, because there are some very important differences. The first is the BOJ, rightly or wrongly, took too long to uh, ease policy. So if you look at this comparison in terms of interest rates, the Fed you know, had the advantage that it had seen the mistakes that the BOJ had made, and it e eased policy much more quickly and much more aggressively. So it got down to zero much sooner. Now that had the huge benefit uh, that they didn't allow their currency to go up in this destabilizing manner that the BOJ did. So the yen appreciated very soon after the beginning of their crisis. The dollar wasn't allowed to do that. And an even more important benefit, which is that Japan allowed deflation to develop, as you can see from this bottom picture. And none of us have allowed deflation to develop. Now deflation uh, in this sort of situation can be very corrosive because it, it, you know, you, you're essentially in a zero-rate environment and you end up raising the real interest rate uh, and, and you essentially make it more difficult for the deleveraging process. So uh, an important lesson that our central bankers absorb by, uh, when I say our, I mean the US and UK, uh, absorb by watching Japan is not allowing <coughs> deflation to develop. And I think that's an important reason uh, and it's an important reason why our experience could end up being different as long as we do some other appropriate things. Uh, this is necessary, not sufficient. Uh, another 
thing to mention along the way is that, of course, Japan uh, did face much more significant structural headwinds than we do, especially in terms of demography. Okay, now, so the issue is what else should we be doing uh, to sort of move forward given our current predicament? Uh, now, one possibility is to improve our monetary policy framework. And we have, after all, in this country, uh, just recently appointed a new Bank of England governor, uh, who George Osborne described as the best central bank governor of his generation. And he's come along and he's got some ideas uh, of what uh, we should be doing. So let's take them seriously and see where they get where they get us before we turn to other things. Now, what Marcani has argued uh, is that essentially the next thing that the central bank should be doing is to offer forward guidance, by which I mean the central bank uh, should essentially guide market expectations and the public's expectations of how long interest rates will remain low. Uh, As you probably know, the U.S. Federal Reserve already does that. So, for example, the U.S. Fed said last September that uh, they were unlikely to raise interest rates until uh, the unemployment rate fell below 6.5%. And they said it at a time when the unemployment rate was 8.1%, so essentially, uh, they gave the markets and, and the general public clear guideposts in terms of when interest rates uh, were likely to rise. Uh, and, and this is useful because you can watch the unemployment rate each month and update your expectations uh, about when, when rates might go up. Now, the practical benefit in the UK of this form of guidance, of which we'll hear more about in August, uh, because that's when the new framework will be announced, uh, is that you can influence uh, when uh, the markets expect the first rate hike to occur. So in the UK, uh, uh, at the time of the May inflation report, the timing of the first rate hike was essentially spring 2016. The day Marcani arrived, the markets had repriced that and were essentially saying the timing of the first rate hike was spring 2015. So they'd come forward almost a whole year. At, the first, at his first meeting, they did try to nudge the markets in the direction of expecting a later rate hike through their statement, and market <coughs> expectations quickly moved from spring 015 to autumn 015. But they haven't quite gone back to uh, 016. Now all this matters, I mean, this might sound dry and abstract, but it matters to the extent that when businesses and consumers uh, borrow, uh, by moving the uh, date of the first rate high, other things being equal, uh, you bring down the interest rate at which people can borrow. Also, you give them greater certainty 
that uh, they won't be hit by an interest rate hike for a while. Um, so other things being equal, that should be somewhat stimulative of demand. Um, so anyway, that's what he's trying to do. Uh, now, there are people like ex-governor Mervyn uh, who've expressed significant concerns about all this because he thinks that this sort of policy will destabilize, unhinge inflation expectations in Mervyn's language and therefore is very dangerous. So I thought, given this is topical, the first thing we should do is, uh, is evaluate this particular debate between Carney and King and then I want to go on and talk about uh, what I think policy should be rather than just focus on forward guidance. Um, now to do that, uh, I've got to talk about, David will laugh at this point because I'm now going to talk about... Particularly Arnie Kahn. Uh, I used to haunt David with Modigliani and Cohn 25 years ago, and I'm going to, if you'll allow me 30 seconds, I'm going to do it again, because it is actually relevant to this debate. You'll see in a minute. Uh, sorry. <laughs> um, okay. Now the, actually, before I show you any slides, I mean, why don't I just uh, explain the argument? The key issue here is the following. At the moment, when central banks ease policy, they do QE, you've, you've all heard about quantitative easing and so on, they claim to stimulate the economy. Now, if you ask Chairman Bonanke as to the main transmission channel through which he thinks uh, he's stimulating the economy, uh, he'll tell you that in addition to making borrowing costs slightly lower, which does boost uh, investment and consumption, he thinks empirically the main channel is through the stock market. Uh, so he has said in the past that uh, this kind of stimulative policy pushes up stock prices and higher stock prices sort of helps business and consumer confidence and gets them to spend more. Uh, and he said this repeatedly now. Uh, and it is a view that is shared uh, by uh, large segments of the central banking community. So the Bank of England has published a paper along these lines claiming uh, that the QE that they undertook had a big impact on the economy. And if you look at how they explain the impact on the economy, the main effect comes to the stock market. Yeah? That's why the stock market is central to this story. The reason it's central to the story is that if you're in a regime where higher where the central bank undertakes stimulative policy, it pushes inflation expectations up, which then push stock prices up, then, so, sorry, then things are fine in the sense their basic transmission mechanism is working. The problem comes if for some reason the higher inflation expectations they're creating actually pushes the stock market down. Because if that were to occur, then uh, this kind of stimulative monetary policy could be self-defeating or worse. It could actually be harmful. And this, I think, is the essence of the debate between Carney and King. Because King worries about the unhinging of inflation expectations. Uh, 
and it's the, the unhinging of inflation expectations can end up not being stimulative but actually be harmful. So the issue is one has to determine what regime one is in. Now, because I don't want to irritate David, That's I won't right. mention Modigliani code. No, can. I'll go straight to <laughs> the relevant exhibit, which is this. Um, this is, the, this is a, a representation of, of the time-varying relationship between inflation expectations and the stock market. So this is for the UK, but I, you can do it for many countries. In the 1990s, uh, this is based on daily data. Uh, in the 1990s, higher inflation expectations were statistically associated with lower share prices. That's why the coefficient's negative. But once the Bank of England was made independent and acquired a bit of credibility and the general level of inflation expectations came down and went closer to zero, this relationship turned and it actually became positive. Uh, now, because I don't have time, I'm not going to give you the six reasons why this relationship turned. One of them's got something to do with Modigliani and Cohen, but there are five other things. Uh, they can be found uh, both in my slides and, and in the fuller version of the lecture. Uh, but essentially, the basic argument is that when inflation expectations are low and closer to zero, then the benefits of higher inflation expectations, which come in a zero-rate world, i.e. you reduce the real interest rate, outweigh the negative effects of higher inflation expectations of stock prices. Uh, so it, it really does depend on where you are in, in terms of the regime, in terms of the level of inflation expectations. And this is just not an artifact of the last 20 years, but in, in a little paper I did while I was at the Financial Markets Group, um, I showed uh, with my co-author that in the gold standard period you had a positive association between inflation expectations and stock prices, but that, that had turned negative in the post-World War II period. Yeah? Okay. So, what's the conclusion in terms of this debate on forward guidance? The conclusion is that while we remain in a regime where boosting inflation expectations boosts growth expectations, then it is indeed appropriate to go for a little bit of... Uh, stimulative policy on the part of the central banks. However, uh, they have to be extremely vigilant that they're not beginning to transition from this regime back to the sort of pre-2000 regime. Uh, the moment they it appears that they're beginning to transition, it's important to stop. Now, this has a very important policy conclusion, which is the notion that some people have, for example, Mark Carney, that you just tie your hands and you pre-commit to keeping rates low, even if inflation expectations are going up, could actually be dangerous. So uh, I, I think it's very important to monitor where it is the MPC comes out next month because they could be making a significant policy mistake if they pre-commit too much. Okay, anyway, 
this was an attempt to be current about a live policy debate in the UK. However, uh, it is my personal view. How much more time do I have, Francesco? Seven minutes. Seven minutes, perfect. That's all I need. It is my personal view <laughs> that actually uh, this, calm, isn't it? <laughs> this debate, while it'll dominate you know, the Financial Times and The Economist and there'll be acres of newsprint devoted to it, is actually not going to have a meaningful impact on the problem I began with, which is the very slow pace of this recovery. And it's time to be much, much more radical. And the reason actually is absurdly simple. It is that monetary policy is not particularly important. So whatever Carney does in terms of forward guidance, I mean, you know, at best it's going to bring borrowing costs down by 25, 50 basis points if you're borrowing on a three-year view. You know, the evidence that we've had so far with £375 billion being spent on QE and, you know, the lowering of guilt yields by, say, 100 basis points is that the stimulative effect on the economy has not been very big. Uh, I think people are increasingly... You know, it's a simple thing that you're taught in your undergraduate economics courses about, you know, Keynesian liquidity traps and so on. When animal spirits are as depressed as they are, it's extremely difficult to stimulate demand through monetary policy. Um, now, uh, of course, people say that uh, fiscal policy is also constrained because of a high debt-to-GDP ratios. But it seems to me that given we've now got the slowest recovery we've we've had since 1900, it's time to consider much more radical options. And an option uh, some very good economists have recommended over the years is the so-called helicopter money drop, which of course is a phrase coined by Friedman, but you can find references to it in the literature much before Milton Friedman. And the sort of practic the common sense argument for it, I I'll give you some of the sort of other theoretical advantages for it, but the common sense case for a helicopter money drop, by which I just mean money finance, fiscal spending, is that if by monetary expansion and, lo and the lowering of interest rates you can't get the private sector to spend, you may as well use that money to directly finance some form of government expenditure, perhaps some infrastructure spending, and simultaneously boost the supply side too. Um, now, you know, the, there's been quite a lot of arguing over this uh, proposition. There are those who say that QE is just as good as a helicopter money drop. Um, it isn't for the reasons I just explained, because one operates directly on demand, the other operates indirectly. And related to that uh, is that, um, I mean, essentially... Uh, what you're doing with the helicopter money drop is potentially very stimulative because you're committing to permanently increase the monetary base, while QE only temporarily increases the monetary base. Because when you do QE, you say, you know, you'll buy the gilts now, but you'll sell them back later. Um, so in, in, in expectational terms, that's a very important difference. Another difference uh, is that in terms of fiscal policy, 
people normally fear crowding out, you know, the Ricardian equivalence effects that you were being ta taught about. Uh, now, the advantage of money-financed uh, fiscal expansion is that these Ricardian e equivalence effects fall away. Um, so for both those reasons, I, I think this should be taken very seriously. Now, perhaps not surprisingly, Mervyn King's argued against this too. Um, and he said that essentially if you do go for helicopter money, then it's a route to hyperinflation because you lose control over uh, the monetary conditions. And his technical argument is that because you've increased the money supply, you've not bought any gilts, you have no gilts to sell back, so you can't bring, uh, you know, absorb the money supply uh, uh, increase that you've created at some future stage if you need to. Now, as uh, another ex-colleague of ours, Willem Bouters, I think correctly pointed out, uh, that argument isn't uh, appropriate because you can easily neutralize the higher monetary base if you needed to uh, through other means, higher reserve requirements or, uh, you know, the tool Bernanke has recently introduced in terms of paying uh, remuneration on excess reserves. So... Um, now, obviously, the one thing I worry about in recommending helicopter money is that central banks have already become less independent. Uh, you know, during the crisis, because the imperative was to avoid the Great Depression, central banks, you know, uh, did a, a number of things which I think have compromised their long-run independence. Uh, this would be yet another step in that direction and it would certainly make exit more difficult, politically more difficult because you would have to go as a, as a central bank governor and tell the, the politicians that you were now going to stop financing their favourite projects and, and that certainly would be more challenging and, and that I think is the one argument I worry about but if on the other hand what you're trying to do is to get out of this long period of stagnation, then I think, you know, just tinkering with the current uh, monetary mechanism through forward guidance and other such stuff, it might be good PR, but isn't really going to get us out of our current predicament. Thank you. Okay, we have a few minutes for uh, questions from the floor. They will leave in Sorry. Let me let me, uh, <laughs> let me get started then, and when well, people pick up courage uh, for. Uh, so, David, I talked about the uh, deep roots of the financial crisis in the workings of the financial sector, particularly the changes in the banking uh, sector. Uh, and your uh, presentation is very clear and still a cries out for uh, regulation and changes in the way we run the finance industry, uh, the banking sector in particular. So what, uh, what are your uh, thoughts about uh, options on the table for uh, reform of the banking sector? Are you happy with what you see uh, happening? Uh, are you optimistic that the right reforms have been put into place? Um, not really, no. Um, I find it, I find the regulatory debate a bit confusing, quite frankly. Um, 
I mean, you can follow, obviously, Basel. It's worried about capital requirements for banks. We talk now about you know, basic capital buffer of 4% or whatever it is, and another 2.5% for a, additional buffer. And then counter-cyclical buffers to avoid the pro-cyclicality that we people concerned with during the financial crisis. And then there's a lot of discussion about leverage ratios and so on. The Americans are currently talking about one between 3% and 5%, the Europeans 4% or whatever it is. So clearly we think banks should hold more capital. We want them to be safer. I mean, banks have de-risked themselves a lot recently. I mean, it's one of the things that's going on in, in social story is you've got an environment in which you know, quantitative easing is taking place. At the same time, we're putting a lot more pressure on banks to become less risky um, through you know, higher amounts of risk-based capital, you know, obviously um, less leverage and so on. Um, I think it's actually pretty confusing. I mean, at the end of the day, we do want safer banks, but we want banks that can actually effectively intermediate the financial system. We need to be clear what we want our banks to do. I mean, I think that it, it is a good idea, I think, to take out the equation a lot of very complicated financial products. Like, I mean, I never knew what a CDO squared was until this financial crisis, and it's very difficult to explain the value of those things. But a large amount of the things that are there in the financial system you know, serve a quite, a quite a good purpose. And I think that sometimes the confusion that we've had in the regulatory debate and about the direction of travel is undermined creating a healthy, better banking system. That said, I mean, I personally like the idea of focusing on, on, on banks holding a, a bit more capital that they have to try to eliminate opportunities for regulatory arbitrage. It was kind of daft that you had to load a, hold, a, hold a load of capital on the banking book and nothing on the trading book. It wasn't then surprising. You'd shift stuff onto the trading book and into places where there were much lower capital charges. So that's kind of a good direction of travel. But I have to say that on the whole, I think the discussion is, is a bit confusing. I mean, you listen to the discussions about separating REIT or commercial banks from investment banks. Um, I mean, much of that, that might be a good thing to do, but what I don't see is a kind of principle reasoned argument in which the costs and benefits of the exercise are carefully explained. And so when people talk about the need to understand the bank's cost of capital, the funding costs and so on, you know, I do think this requires rigorous proper research before these radical, sometimes possibly damaging changes are made. So I just think it's a, it's a rather sloppy debate. Whether we'll get there in the end, I don't know. Well, he's asked the most interesting question because he's, he, he raised some really basic issues about economics. But in terms of... Yes, sorry. I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for what David just said in terms of, of, of the debate on, uh, on macroprudential and bank regulation. Um, what this debate has lost sight of is the negative effects on growth. Um, yes, yeah. and, it's a very good uh, way of putting it, actually, I like that. And, yeah. uh, you, you know, they are almost certainly holding back the recovery. They, they're denying it, but they almost certainly are. And because it's so politically unpopular to say anything nice about the banks, 
um, not enough people are sort of making these counter-arguments. And even central bankers uh, are keeping quiet uh, because it's just, I mean, the political pressure to say nasty things about mm -hmm. banks is not so great. But you think that capital requirements should be, uh, should not go up now because we're in the middle of the recession, but you're fine with higher capital requirements in the longer term? Or you say, you should just leave banks alone? I think, I mean, there's the, the, clearly the case that the banks had to, you know, get, be in a position where they pose less risk to the system. You know, we saw, you know, the, the too big to fail issue was very serious. An enormous amount of, of public money was involved in bailing out the banks. I mean, if you're a Swiss, then you know huge chunks of Swiss taxpayer money went to salvage uh, UBS. Uh, our the British situation, the biggest expense was an RBS, which you could claim was a result of an incredibly daft management team, you know, buying AB and AMRO, which was a damage-ridden bank full of really bad stuff, and, you know, they bought a, a basket case. But, you know, clearly there are lots of issues out there, but, you know, bygones are bygones. We, we're, we're, are, we're where we are. You know, banks uh, need to prop, uh, be given the appropriate incentives, so micro and macro micro-regulation is crucial to make sure that banks provision properly for the, the things that they do. They're holding enough capital. I am sympathetic to the idea of counter-cyclical capital buffers. They sound absolutely fantastic. The problem is it's very difficult to time them. You know, if you, you know, you know, these things are based on credit-to-GDP ratios and so on. Well, these guys are macro-economists. You know, these things are quite difficult to understand. And the old story of, you know, too little, too late, badly timed, and actually making things worse rather than better, better comes in with some of the issues there. I mean, but I think that, uh, you know, we look at our banking system in the UK. Um, Lloyds Bank has been effectively, you know, the, the, a lot of the mortgage assets have recovered a bit more than people thought. The bank's in better shape than it otherwise would have been. That bank's holding a reasonable amount of capital. Barclays, as a result of pressures, is probably pulling out of lots of the riskier areas of activity. Is getting, and that's, I think that's a subject not just of changing capital requirements, but also the, the, the environment that we're in, the anti-banking environment. RBS really bothers me. This is a bank that uh, I think only a fool would manage that bank under, under current circumstances because the political and regulatory environment is not being terribly encouraging to rebuilding a bank that's responsible for about 20% of the UK I'm only making that up. It's a guesstimate, right, of, of the UK lending market. So, um, you know, this is where authorities and banks have to work together, right? And quite a lot of the regulatory debate is, is a way of trying to get that on the table in a coherent way so the right decisions can be made and we know effectively when prompt corrective action, all that sort of stuff will take place in the future. So, um, but I do get worried about the... The, the one minute regulators say one thing, the next minute they say something else. It creates an incredibly uncertain environment for rebuilding banks. And, and coming back into your thing, you know, the QE has taken place. £350 billion worth of quantitative easing. What's happened to, what's, what's happened to M5 during this? Probably stood still. Yeah? So you've had a massive amount of what you might think of as monetary expansion, and the money supply has stayed the same. Yeah. It's amazing. Right. Why? Because the banks are holding tons of money at the central bank. Why? Because you ask them to de-risk. You can't ask them to de-risk and hold loads of money at the central bank at the same time lend a lot to you and me. It's, it's a bit crazy. 
Um, and I think that, that, that linking together monetary policy with clear idea of demand in the economy, which I think is what worries you, yes. is, is, is actually something that at a very simple level we've got to think about. And, you know, it speaks to a sort of structural flaw in, in, in the legislation, at least in this country, which is we've got an MPC and we've got an FPC. So on the day BOE members are wearing an FPC hat, they're telling the banks to be conservative. And on the days they're wearing an MPC hat, they're telling them to, be, to lend aggressively. And it just doesn't add up. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I argued at the outset that there should be one committee to, to stop this sort of logical inconsistency. Well, there's one man, Mark Carney. Doesn't he chair both yes. bits? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, question there. Oh. Given my fairly limited understanding of, the, of the, uh, the subject, I wonder if the helicopter money drop can work for a small one-country economy, or does it have to be synchronized among larger economies? Uh, it certainly has to be targeted uh, in the sense that. Uh, I'm sure you're being very modest about your knowledge uh, because that, 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 that's a very deep and important question. Clearly, if you're a small open economy and all we did was to mail out £1,000 to each individual in the country and, and, and told them to spend it, uh, then even if they spent it, a large part of it might just be spent on imports uh, and therefore the net uh, stimulative effect for the domestic economy might be tiny. Um, so, in fact, my preferred uh, way forward with, with a helicopter drop would be to have very specific targeted projects, uh, preferably infrastructure projects, uh, in the domestic e economy with, um, you know, uh, with sort of which, you w which the central bank would agree with the government and you would ensure that the impact on the domestic economy was maximized you would select projects on that basis. Can I ask Sushil a question? The, um, I mean, one way of thinking about why QE hasn't actually stimulated the economy enough, at least part of the equation you might argue is that the, was the old money supply multipliers kind of, yes. I guess, dropped, right? Yes. Because the banks are holding a, a lot more reserves at the central yes. bank. And in a sense, you're saying the real problem with the QE is that, that that's what's happening. Yes. And it's a frustration with that, which is saying, let's just go for the high-powered high money base in the economy directly yes. and crank that up with, uh, with a pure increase in the money supply, the helicopter yes. drop. Yes. Is there not a way to kind of just do something to get the, get, the, get the reserves at the bank, that the banks are holding at the central bank down, and to try and stimulate that? I mean, it's a kind of reversal of Friedman's argument that you should pay reserves on the uh, interest, interest on the reserves at the central bank. Yes. You know, he sort of effectively taxed them, yes. uh, forced them out into the economy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, your, your colleague Charles Goodhart has recommended paying negative interest rates on, on, on those deposits. And certainly, Sweden tried it for a little while. Yeah. Uh, they didn't go very far. I think it was only minus 50 beeps or something. I, I forget the exact detail. 
but you can't go very far. You probably couldn't go much beyond minus 100 anyway. Yeah. Um, but it, it had very little stimulative effect in, in, in aggregate terms because essentially the fundamental problem I think we've now got is we've gone through these years of stagnation uh, and what Keynes would have called animal spirits are very depressed. Um, so one reason banks don't lend more is there generally isn't that much extra demand um, uh, you, you know, to, to borrow from them. So what I think you need to do is you need to do the old-fashioned you know, general theory Keynes thing of digging holes and filling them in the game, except you know, we, we, call, we call it HS2 or something, some nice infrastructure <laughs> project, uh, and we finance it through, through the central bank. But as long as we can do enough of these projects, which are shovel-ready and you know, can have a quick and large effect on demand, then at least you might begin to get uh, animal spirits going. But, but, I don't like the term animal spirits. Okay, but I know the, you the, don't. That's the, why the, I use it uh, deliberately. But, 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 the, the, um, <laughs> but I do like you know, thinking, the, interrupt me and talk, ask your own questions, but it, it bothers me yes. um, a bit. I understand that, look, we've got a bit a massively underutilized construction sector in the UK yes. at the moment. They stopped building the Olympics and they've got yes. Crossrail, but they haven't got much else, right? So yes. you've got a massive amount of underutilized resources. Now, potentially, there's lots of things out there that people like to use building-wise. They don't have to be new factories, but certainly new houses and things yes. like that. Absolutely. So, but aren't there ways to stimulate that sector, you know, through the tax system and things like that? So the private sector actually you know, seize the incentive to get it going. I mean, Osborne's used various schemes to try and stimulate demand directly and that with certain weird loan arrangements and yes. so on. So they're aware of the problem, right? Yes. And they want to get those resources moving. Yes. Now, is that just a complicated way of saying, you know, well, that's a version of, of what I'm talking about, or is that something different? No, uh, I mean, uh, I'll make two points there. The first thing is that what the government is trying to do is all constrained by the fiscal envelope because they've committed to this austerity. So whatever they try to do is not sufficiently ambitious and is not going to have a sufficiently big effect to shake us out of this stagnation. You need to be bold and you, you need to take, impart large amounts of stimulus. Um, and they can't do that, but they, you can free them up from that constraint through money finance. Because their argument so far is that if we push the budget deficit up, we'll just become like Greece and the markets will attack us. But the way you get around that is you say the central bank is financing this extra spending. And the markets in that scenario are much less likely to attack you if they know that the big gorilla in the room, the central bank, is buying even more of this stuff. Thank you, Sushir. Thank you, David. Thank you, everybody. Sorry, we're out of time. David took over the time for the questions. Um, <laughs> I feel bad about that. The good news <laughs> is um, there is a reception now, uh, and so you can approach our speakers there and ask your questions there. See you in a minute. <laughs>